0: Hi there, friend. My name is John Werner. I used to be a part of the largest cult in the United States. After studying the Bible, Christian history, and ministry, I set my sights on confronting the problematic nature of white evangelicalism in the United States. In 2019, I published my first book as a first step in addressing the subtle issues of this complex system. This podcast will continue that work under the same title. Welcome to The Cult. Of Christianity. Content warning While the cult of Christianity often deals with tough subjects regarding religious trauma and other triggering topics, some episodes may be more explicit than others. This episode contains content that may be distressing to some listeners. This may include multiple mentions of self-harm, suicide, sexual abuse, or other intense concepts. Please only listen if you are in the headspace to do so. Take care of yourself. On today's show, we have an amazing guest who was featured in the widely viewed documentary Holy Hell, which was broadcast on CNN and named one of Netflix's top 10 documentaries. It can now be found on Amazon Prime she authored a book so good i wish it was the book i had written it's titled the followers holy hell and the disciples of narcissistic leaders how my years in a notorious cult parallel today's cultural mania it's a mouthful but it's a great book uh radia welcome to the show
1: hey thanks john happy to be here
0: yeah uh really really happy that you're here um I have to ask um this is kind of my baseline question. I ask a lot of guests. How did you relate to religion the first eighteen years of your life?
1: Uh, well, as you know, um I was born and then raised a Catholic, and uh you know to the Catholics, there's a rule, and it's uh this is when you're seven years old. They say that's when you reach the age of reason. That's why seven-year-olds get to receive the sacrament of communion. Um, when I reached the age of reason, I considered Catholicism unreasonable. So I basically left Catholicism, although, um, I still, you know, went to Catholic school all the way up to uh, high school. My parents were not particularly uh involved in the church they were <clears throat> in my third chapter I talk about three types of people uh, that join cults and the first type is the hummingbirds and I would categorize my parents as hummingbirds you know (laughs) they would flitter around you know go to you know Easter Sunday or be shown you know show up when when a function was there to kind of look like they were religious but they really weren't and they didn't enforce anything on me so um, but That being said, I was really enamored with the saints. And um, I was, you know, I read and studied a lot about these various individuals in history who, um, at least the stories be told, that they experienced some transcendental experience. Uh, They experienced God directly. Um, So there were, you know, my patron saint uh, was, or the saint that my confirmed name was St. Teresa, and she had kind of a wild and bizarre relationship with God. Um, And so I read all these stories, and this was funny. I did a 23, not a 23, I mean Ancestry.com, and guess who one of my ancestors is? St. Luke. Um really. That guy. Yeah, that guy. Wow. And interestingly enough, he is um he is the patron saint of artists, which I am, a professional artist, and writers, which apparently I'm a writer as well. Um <laughs> so i I call him Uncle Luke. Um but uh so I took refuge in aspects of the church that are not in the in the Christian churches. They kind of they didn't want to go. You know that was to them idolatry. But you know to the Catholics they still, you know, they kind of had to go with Rome pantheism. So you know the saints to the Catholics were the Roman pantheists. You know they were they were the other gods, the, the sort of demigods. And um, so I I kind of was interested in that. And by the time I was in uh, freshman, I was 14, we were studying comparative religions. And we were studying all the isms, you know, Hinduism and Buddhism and Jainism and all the isms. And we came across this word in Hinduism called Nirvana. And I asked the teacher what that meant. And he said, well, uh, some yogis in India, through a certain meditation practice, experience God directly. I'm like, what? (laughs) Say what? (laughs) Uh, Is that true? And he said, well, apparently. So I set out from about the time I was 14 for about another uh, 12 years. I really set out on a journey to find anyone who had those meditation techniques without me having to travel to India. And so, you know, of course, when I was growing up, those were the days uh, in the 60s and 70s of drug, sex, and rock and roll. So I definitely did a lot of psychedelics and a lot of, got into a lot of profound conversations with my comrades about the pursuit of God-realization. Usually while tripping. <laughs> oh wow, man! And um, so I was on that journey, and I, I started reading uh, more books that were more Eastern oriented. And I came finally across a woman who uh, who stated just that—that that she had those techniques and that she reveals them to people. And that led me down a journey that eventually got me not from her, although she is her own little narcissist. But she uh, led me to Jaime, the guru who then took us on a 20 some odd year old, 20 some odd year journey into holy hell. <laughs> so that's wow. my story. Yeah.
0: I feel like you've answered that question before because you hit some plot points really smoothly there. Nice job.
1: Oh, yeah, good. I wrote about so yeah, <laughs> Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. I guess you had to think about it a little. Yeah. huh?
1: And I, and I lived it.
0: <laughs> yeah. There's that too. So, so your perspective kind of as a young adult on spirituality, is it, wh- is it based on this nirvana concept mostly, or was there more to your views on spirituality than that?
1: Well, yes. Um, you know, and at the end of the book, I, I mean, I take you and you know, because you read the book, but I take you through a long journey. It's in three parts. And first part is the journey to the Buddha field. So my life as a child and sort of, you know, how I grew up in the 50s and 60s in LA and all that. And then the second part is called the Buddha field, which is a nickname. Um, some people get confused and they think we were Buddhists. We were not. Um, we, and I just, I just had a, an article that I just published on my website, radiaglis.com, and this was an interview, it was a written interview, and at first she said, these were Buddha worshipers. No, we did not worship Buddha, we wanted to become Buddha. That is the difference. Our goal was self or God realization. So, um, the third part is called reflections, and we we look back or I look back at answering some of the questions about what is a cult and what kind of people join cults, et cetera, et cetera, and also where we're heading in this country today. But the reason why I say this, John, is because, and you may recall, the last two chapters, um one chapter is called It's a Nice Place to Visit. And then the the last chapter is the bubble and then the epilogue. In those three chapters, I really wrap it up for you as far as what my spiritual understanding and what my awakening was through this long journey from the time I was about seven years old. So to answer your question, and I know I'm <coughs> going around in circles here, but I have not forget forgotten your question, um the goal when we were in the Buddha field was to have these meditation sort of transcendental experiences in meditation. And I describe that, you know, I describe that in my um in the section called the Buddha field in the first chapter called the knowing. I really describe what my experience was when I was initiated, etc., so, yes, through those meditation practices, there was some very kind of transcendental experiences. There were four techniques: the light, the music, the word, and the nectar. And uh so there was these kind of wild transcendental experiences that happened. But and and the whole kind of the whole point of being in the Buddha field was to continue to stay. Uh, disciplined in that practice, in the practice of selfless service, in the practice of transcending the ego. Uh, first of all, identifying the ego and then transcending it. And the, the, the feeling, at least in Eastern religion, in regards to transcending the ego is if you want to be one with God, there cannot be a you. And the, and the ego is the identity of you or self. So you can't have a you and God. That's a, by, by its very nature is the separation. So the idea or the practice for 20 some odd years was to explore the ego and to transcend it, which puts you in a perfect position for a narcissist to take advantage of. But that's another story, or that is the story. Um, so at the end of the line my my conclusion was that it's not about transcending anything you aren't going to be greater than you are you're not going to be more enlightened more spiritual more anything and it's not i mean i was looking you know in my in my third chapter i open it with i came to the realization that When one is running towards something, they're usually running from something. And so I and a lot of people look for these spiritual, heightened spiritual experiences to literally run from our pain. And when I look back at the saints in question, they were martyrs and they were suffering both mental and physical anguish. And yet they always had these sort of transcendental expressions on their face, like they could go beyond the body. And you'll see sadhus in India that sit in a, you know, a dhoti is what it's called, but it looks like a little diaper. And they just sit there all day long, with a little begging bowl, and they're skinny as can be, and what they're doing is transcending the body and transcending desires and transcending uh ambition and all of that stuff, so that they can uh literally die of the humanness and <clears throat> At the end, I talk about, yeah, not so much, you know, um we are already there in our very human self. So I I see us as a, I see God, and I say this in the very beginning, to me, I don't believe in a deity. I don't believe in worshiping some burly man out in the clouds who judges and condemns, which is the very Catholic narrative. Um, but I also don't see a deity such as jesus or buddha or whatever i i appreciate them as teachers and have learned from you know you and i have talked about it i studied many of them and many of their teachings and i still uh i still get a lot of a lot of things from their teachings but i do not worship them as a god or a deity um so in that sense i am not religious now if you talk about spiritual then then it's a matter of semantics because you know I I laugh at people who say I'm an atheist it's a matter of semantics really it's just joining another group it's a, it's it's claiming another identity you're not an atheist if you believe in science then you believe in god you know it's like what do you want to talk about um you know what is science science is just beginning to understand creation or understand quantum physics or understand any of that so atheists kind of crack me up they're just joining another group um so my answer my long answer is if you're talking from a scientific uh standpoint it's called the universal field or the conscious universal consciousness which is what i believe so i believe that there is a Universal consciousness in all things, in human beings, in animals, in all adamant and inanimate objects, and the entire universe from the earth to all of the universes and everything, um, is, moves within this universal consciousness. And so to, to do those kinds of meditation techniques, they may be fine. To ground you and to keep you focused, but you might as well drop acid, you know, which I did that too. Um, because where are they going to take you? What are you going to do with that and still live in this world as a human being? We're here for a reason, you know, and I always say at, at the end, when people say, well, what are you here for? My answer is I'll let you know when I'm through, you know, my, my journey is not done yet who knows um and i don't really know what i'm here for until i end this life and then who cares so is that a long answer
0: <laughs> yeah no that's i mean i'm like i'm I'm tempted to just throw away my notes and get into all of that because i i i really appreciate how thorough that was um sure because because there's There's so much, I think you're kind of nailing, and I think you described really well, like the hair splits that are important, but like there's really a longing, especially in today's world, to suppress your ego, right? Like there's like a... It's just we're so consumed by our identity all the time that it sounds really appealing to be like, can I just throw away the me observing myself part yeah. and just experience experiences without experiencing reviewing the experience? Um, <laughs> right, you know, right.
1: Exactly. You can't so this, do but, it. You right. You can try, Right, but you can't do it.
0: But there certainly are spiritual... Um, or cult leaders, you know, depending on how you look at them, who, who will encourage and there's I mean, I've even been in, you know, in therapy sessions where we've meditated and talked about ego suppression. And it's not necessarily an evil thing. I think the best thing you said in all of that was, um, if it's grounding you, I think that's really profound, because it's not about running away from who you are. It's about experiencing things in a healthy way um and relating and meditation can be an avenue to that but so so i'm picturing you young like kind of you know having these acid drops having these like are are you was that what you were doing kind of just craving like oh, were you yeah. running away was that kind of what was going on um
1: both you know as i said when you run towards something you're usually running from something i was doing both i was running towards something because i was fascinated in you know, I describe in my first, you know, in the journey, in the first part, I describe growing up in Los Angeles in a very affluent background with um, very affluent society. And so, you know, I think for some people who long for that because they don't have it, um, I was raised in it and surrounded by it, and it was not fulfilling it was so superficial and so uh, false it was it was simply the pinnacle of identities that that people strive for um and let me let me save you the trip it is completely unfulfilling it is yet just another identity so even though my parents i refer to them as the entrepreneur class Um, you know, and I, and I talk about, if you ever saw the, the series Mad Men, that was kind of the class that my parents grew up in. It was an entrepreneur class. Um, they were, my father was a really big time lawyer and my mother was a fashion designer. My father was a lawyer for all of, you know, sort of Hollywood LA elite. So even though we weren't the super rich and we were not, Uh, We weren't middle class either, but we hung out with the super rich. I mean, I went to private schools with them and, you know, they were my friends. So I was in their life and got a real taste of what people today, especially in this country, have so much striving for that ambition to have yet more, a bigger house, a bigger, a faster car, you know, uh, greater, you know. Uh, better sneakers for god's sakes whatever um and and that striving is to me a, a tremendous waste of time so i at a very early age was not satisfied with that so i came to the realization having grown up in that um affluent life already it wasn't something i was striving for so i had the observation of were the people around me happy? No, my parents were alcoholics. Everybody was, everybody was alcoholics. They called it cocktail hour in those days. But every, you know, you saw if you saw Mad Men. I mean, look at how much they drank for God's sakes. They drank all day long. They had in their offices, you know, they had you know little carafes of scotch and whatever. And so people were. It was obvious to me that they were trying to. Um, cover their pain. And, and I talk about some of the, you know, very painful things that happened to me in my life, but my life was nothing compared to some of my friends. And so I, I realized, am I running from that? Well, I'm running from the superficiality of affluence that people think this will save you from pain. This will save you from you can get all the facelifts in the world. It will not save you from aging and dying. So I was looking like the Buddha for that transcendental state that that those things no longer mattered to me.
0: That makes sense that like that's for that to be your kind of story leading up to you know what seems like a, a some sort of like community that can really all like join together almost in some camaraderie and explore this idea of of freedom you know of mental freedom of getting out of your body so to speak um but when I have to ask when did you first wonder if you were in a cult
1: That's a funny question because. <clears throat> <laughs> and you know on the, in the first chapter of the third section it's entitled what is a cult it's complicated and it's actually one of my funnier chapters but it really takes the definition of a cult and really breaks it down and i'm quite sarcastic through it all because we have to be careful of that word cult. People love that word. It's so salacious, you know, it's such a nummy. People love a clandestine kind of, you know, group of people. What are they doing behind closed doors? Ooh, You know, and a lot of people, when they ask, you know, or if I'm asked to write an article, or if I'm asked to uh, write an interview, they say, how did you escape the cult? And that is such a dramatic word, uh, I have a
0: different question. We'll come back to it, but I, right. I take note of what you just said. Okay, so take on, note because I'm gonna I'm not gonna ask that question. I'm gonna phrase it slightly different. So yeah, okay, keep going. All right,
1: <laughs> so you know, but they love to say escape the cult, which makes it sound like I'm you know in some dungeon somewhere, and I have to find a way to escape. Um, it is a mental prison. It is a mental emotional prison, and it's very complex. But to me, it did not seem like a prison because I loved the Buddha field. I still do. I still miss them. You know, it turns out that it was a cult because the leader, who was a malignant narcissist, was doing all kinds of shady behind our back, number one. And number two, he was a total fraud, I mean, he was a fraud from the get-go, and he had all kinds of parlor tricks. You know, remember in uh, the turn of the century, last last uh, century, where they would have these seances, you know, and these poor people especially wealthy people, they would invite the soothsayer in and they'd, they'd do all these parlor tricks, like make the table rise and make the lights go on and off and bells. And shit. he did that to us. I didn't find that out, John till 10 years after I left, you know? Wow. So, so when you say, you know, left or escaped the cult, um, that's a relative term. Was I, you know, why was it a cult? Because he was a pathological narcissist and a pathological liar and a fraud. So he was a, um this was a scam, basically. And he was a scammer. So the word con comes from the word confidence. So you don't necessarily know you're in a cult, you know. So we would, avoid that word nobody wants to say the word i'm in a cult nobody it's so pejorative you know and thanks to people like jim jones and charlie manson and so when people think of the word cult they think of that they think of kool-aid you know and ooh, we're all going to commit suicide at the behest of the of the leader that's possible in some groups i'm not saying it's not however we have to be careful of using that word cult because it's so uh broad. And so my group, as my friend said, well, if we're in a cult, at least it's a good one. And it was after Holy Hell came out and I left the Buddha field in 2006 and Holy Hell didn't come out for 10 years till 2016. And when it did, all of this crap started rolling out and I'm like, Oh are you kidding? Really? Um so that's when I started really investigating who this guy was and what tricks was he playing.
0: There wasn't necessarily like da- like you, while you were experiencing it you weren't ever questioning am I in a cult because I, I I mean I obviously I I talk to Christians and ex-Christians a lot. Um and there's usually like some doubts that happen like am am i part of something weird here well, that sure.
1: yeah i mean philip philippe who was in the movie and he says well if it was a call it was a good call he said that about 10 years in you know so so we were we were wondering but we were also having a good time so it's complex i um <clears throat> I refer, I talk about in my book, when you're, when you go to Disneyland, you're willing to forego your disbelief for the ride. You know, it's fake, but you know, you're having a good time and you're really willing to forego your disbelief in order to be there. But what if you don't know it's fake? What if you are having a good time, but it's all an illusion and You don't know. And your best friends and the person you admire the most are all in on it. It's like, what do you do with that? You know, it's like, so it's complex. You're in prison, but you're in this kind of, um, fake world. You're literally living a lie.
0: The amusement park analogy is actually so, uh, good because it really is something like that where it it is real to you in that moment right like there is no separate it's as real as any of your other senses um but uh this is so uh this is my my little bit of a it's a it's a different word choice but it's a similar question when did you exit the cult
1: all right so I wish I could make these answers shorter, but (laughs) it's just not what I do. Okay.
0: Hey, podcasts weren't designed for brevity, so go for (laughs) it. All right.
1: Okay. (laughs) So here's what happened. We were all in LA, and we were all having a good time, and he hadn't quite, really turned into he was developing his narcissism and we were feeding it so it it, there is a feedback loop between the malignant narcissist and its followers and when i first wrote the book the the working title was called duped because this is when i started you know after holy hell came out and i started investigating i realized damn it we were duped right um But then as I started to really unravel this story, I'm going, wait a minute, wait a minute here. Yeah, we were duped. Yeah, we were lied to. Yeah, he was a pathological liar. Yeah, there were parlor tricks. Yeah, we were in this carnival. But it's not about him. It's about the followers. It's like, yeah, we all had moments of doubt and things that came up. And I talk about cognitive dissonance and I talk about, you know, starting to suppress your own uh, deep feelings and questions in your mind. So we, you know, and I really go into it in the book of those transitions when he really started to become more of the he started believing, as malignant narcissists do, they start believing their own story. So yeah, he's doing all these parlor tricks, but he's also convinced himself and the people that are in on part of the tricks that this is a necessary thing for people because he's helping them, quote unquote. So he really starts to see himself. In the beginning, it was all about the four techniques of the, no- the knowledge, you know, and he never never said it was about him. It was about the four techniques. And he was just there like a midwife to show us the techniques and help us devote our life to them. But after a while, so it used to be connect to God's love in this meditation. And after a while, the narrative changed from connect to God's love to connect to my love. And I'm like, what? You know, like, where did that? And I asked him about it, and I said, what uh, you know, what's with the uh, change in the narrative?" And he said, "Well, Gradia," because he had this weird little accent. He knew how to play everybody. So a good sociopath are chameleons, and they'll be whatever you want them to be. So for me, I was older, a little bit more educated, and I knew him at first as a friend. So I was never looking for a master or a guru and uh i was looking for the techniques and he showed them to me so once you get the techniques you're on your own you're not on your own you still you're still hanging out with the group because everybody else had the techniques or talking about them so you you didn't want to leave them but you it was now up to you to have your own experience and so i did so i was different than generations that came after us so i would be considered a, an elder right because i was an initiate and there was about 150 of us but there was only 40 initiates so he stopped initiating once he started taking control and changing the narrative now he just used initiation as a dangling carrot so the elders the ones that were initiated we were in the beginning when it was connected to god's love and when i asked him What's this connect to my love? He'd say, well, Radhya, some people, not you, because he knew how to play me, need a living God, basically, or a living master, such as Jesus or Buddha, so that they can touch and see and feel, you know, and at the time, it was logical. You know, people seem to respond that way. And they, and so, so he was saying, I am just being that for them, like it was some sacrifice that he was making for them. Um, so I started to get a little bit, when he started changing that narrative, I started to go, okay, what are you doing, dude? And this started to get worse. And he started getting more and more, you know, like he used to push us away in the beginning when we would prostrate in front of him. But after a while, he stopped pushing people away. He kind of liked it when people prostrated in front of him and took his shoes off and kissed his feet and all of that. That was sort of kind of, hmm, this feels pretty good. So here we are, or the generations coming in, we're feeding his malignant narcissism. So there was a guy in L.A. who was, he had a lust for one of the young women was very pretty and he was very he was older and quite unattractive and she wasn't having it so he wanted to blame the guru for brainwashing her and if she wasn't so brainwashed she would fall in love with him and run away with him you know to the casbah so he started stalking her and becoming really dangerous and he started leaving letters on her on her car basically saying what he was going to do he was going to kill the guru and he was going to have her kidnapped with cult awareness network and have her deprogrammed and he was going to do all these horrible things so i being his, being the guru sort of michael cohen because uh, my father was a lawyer and I was, you know, grow up in the law. So I hired the lawyers and the private detectives. And I had this guy checked out and yeah, he was dangerous. He was uh institutionalized for 17 years and he had several arrests for assault and battery and spousal abuse and all this other stuff. So he was a dangerous guy. So I had him put in jail. And the DA said, <clears throat> I can only keep him for about, Three months. So I suggest we can't stop him from doing what he's doing. So I suggest you get out of Dodge. So we fled Los Angeles. And that's when I started to see the mentality of the guru fall apart. That was in about 1991. And I had been in the Buddha field since 1984. So, whatever, how many years that was. So as we traveled, Uh, with his entourage, I was with his entourage, which was a very small group of initiates that were, I don't know, there was about about a little over half a dozen of us, and we traveled looking for a new place. And as we were traveling, his paranoia started getting worse, and he started literally having us at his feet 24 hours while he's ruminating about how he's being persecuted and what is he going to do and all of this stuff. So I started noticing him unraveling psychologically and I thought, okay, where's God in all of this? And where's all this mighty, you know, if you're the Buddha, what are you worried about? You know? So it was about 1991 that I started questioning and I started losing any kind of interest in him per se. I started to see him more as an eccentric uncle because he still, I loved him and he was still, you know, this kind of wacky, interesting character. That was the glue that held us all together. But I really started to lose <clears throat> any kind of romance idea, spiritual romance idea of who he was. But, you know, John, I, I, by night, we moved to Austin in 92. By 95, I was completely not only disenchanted with him, but I really started to get angry at him. He was very disappointing to me. He was unraveling, and I was getting sick and tired of watching these sycophants who would prostrate to him and laugh at his every stupid word or you know story or his silly shenanigans so i was really conflicted but i didn't leave until 2006 so i was conflicted for like 11 years why well that's a long story but this was my family these were my friends my best friends and my family was dead I, there was no one on the outside that i could go to and I knew that if I left, I would be ostracized and demonized by my, by my friends and my family. So I put up with him for years because I, because this was my life and it wasn't that easy. It, that's why it's an emotional prison that you're in. Um, I could have left at any time, but I knew the consequences. So it was very difficult to leave that, you know.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. Um <laughs> I can imagine and relate. Uh the <sighs> there's a lot there's a lot I want to respond to. One thing is just um you know this kind of escape versus exit language, right? The feeling is escape. The action is exiting, right? Cuz it's it it's not just getting away from an abuser. It's making a conscious choice to not be a part of something anymore. Yeah, that's really uh, hard. And it's very, very difficult um, because there are consequences, primarily social consequences um, for doing that, as well as, you know, personal consequences, having identity crises like who am I like this was my life.
1: Totally. Yeah, especially, you know, groups always develop this, um, this air of exceptionalism. So you, you start to believe that there's nothing out there that you can relate to. This was your only hope, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. I um, wow. Well, thank you for doing that. If uh, if you're listening and you want to fill in any of the gaps about uh, Radia's uh, personal life, you can uh, read her book and uh, even supplement that with the documentary um, for some some more of the details. But yeah, I think uh, people should
1: see the documentary first because okay. it's on Amazon and it's only. Hundred minutes, you know. So the the only good thing that you'll get out of it is you'll get to see us in our natural habitat. You know, it's so when you read the book, then you'll have a visual of because it is real archival footage. So you'll see me when I'm like 29 and I'm 68 now. So um, so there's like real footage. So you'll get. It's kind of fun to know what you're looking at, but on the other hand. You don't know what you're looking at because you can't tell a 30-year story in 100 minutes. So my book really fleshes out what you think you're seeing in the movie.
0: Yeah. You can be you can do a, the crazy thing I did and just do both at the same time. Um, but, uh, <laughs> did you?
1: Yeah. And yeah, I also a- do it in Audible, too. So if you're not a reader, nice. uh, you can go to Audibles and it's in my voice, which who knows the sarcasm better than me?
0: right uh it definitely comes through in the writing i can attest to that um so so one of the things that's come up a lot in just your story and i think applies a lot more broadly when we talk about cults is this idea of narcissism um and so we'll go we'll go dictionary definition first definition narcissistic personality disorder is a mental condition in which people uh have an inflated sense of their own self and own importance and a deep need for excessive attention and admiration and they have a are characterized as having a lack of empathy for others um the word is fun because it's actually based on the story of narcissus um which is a you know greek tragedy uh he was this an impossibly handsome character um but he wasn't able to fall in love with anyone or anything Uh, But, you know, as a teenager, he leaves behind this long trail of brokenhearted women and men who fall in love with him. Uh, But he was so disinterested. But one day he happens to see his own reflection in a pool of water and he immediately uh, felt deep love for the first time in his life. So he falls in love with himself. But the one way nature of the relationship uh, was obviously destructive because he couldn't bring himself to leave the pool. And he eventually died of thirst because he didn't want to disturb the image in the pool and starvation because he didn't want to stop looking at himself um so it's kind of a it's a very fascinating lens to see narcissism kind of from the tragic lens and not just the clinic lens um and i actually had a job uh in my adult life where i worked with diagnosed narcissists um and i was trained on how to interact with them um But in today's world, uh, people on the Internet will just call uh, their ex-partners or anyone they don't like narcissists. Um, So from your perspective, what's the biggest difference between narcissism and selfishness? Or is there a difference?
1: Well, that's a really good question, John, because we're now bantering that word around every time we don't like somebody. And we have to be very careful. Everybody's got a little narcissism in them, especially, um, you know, People, even you and I, if we, you know, I wrote a book, you have a podcast, you wrote a book. So you have to have a little bit of, to put yourself out there in the world, you have to have a little bit of self-confidence. So there's a little bit of narcissism in everyone. And then you start to get up the scale. So you'll see politicians, most of them are quite narcissistic, uh, entertainers, performers, you know, they have um, some narcissistic tendencies. Uh, you can't absolutely hate yourself and want to crawl in a hole and put yourself out on stage at the Super Bowl. You know what I mean? So So there's that. But then there is malignant narcissism. So this isn't a character flaw. This is an actual mental disorder. And that is very, very different because, you know, people have said, you know, well, look at Obama or look at this other political leader or whatever. Um, you have to be careful not to define them the way I would be, say, defining Donald Trump. Donald Trump is a malignant narcissism. You can tell when you, when you see uh, politicians like Biden, Obama, Bush, Reagan, you know, Reagan, Clinton, yes, they all have a little narcissism in them. But here's the here's the trick. No one, I don't think, would ever um, disagree with me that all of the aforementioned presidents that I just mentioned were not empathic. Regardless of what their political beliefs or um, aspirations are, you can see the empathy in them. Uh, when you look at Joe Biden and when you hear his story of his son and his deep compassion, you know, for a lot of people, you can see that there is a deep empathy. Now, whether his policies are right or wrong, that's debatable, but that's politics. I'm not talking in my book about politics. I'm talking about a pathology and that it's a very dangerous pathology. And our country has never seen that before. You know, somebody said to me, uh, in a, I was in another interview, and they said, well, what about the cult of Obama? There was no cult of Obama, and there was no cult of Bush, and there was no cult of Reagan, no cult of Bill Clinton. Um, just because you like someone or just because they espouse to what you believe politically or whatever, does not make you into a cult. What I see with a malignant narcissist, and the reason why I wrote the followers, is the malignant narcissist is so skilled at getting narcissist supply. They And we have to remember, the malignant narcissist does not care about you. They will be very clever, and most of them are sociopaths, so they can be very clever. They can figure out what it is they need to do or become to feed their narcissist supply. So they will give you what they think you want or what you're afraid of in order for you to give them the admiration and the control that they need, desperately need, that's a very dangerous position to be in. We see Hitler, we see Kim Jong-un, we see Putin, we see um, malignant narcissists that end up being autocrats or end up being uh, leaders of countries that take their followers down a grim path. This is why I wrote the book, John, Um You know, when I left the Buddha field in 2006, I just really wanted to leave that life behind me. And it wasn't until 2016 when when Holy Hell came out and when Donald Trump was elected, I saw a parallel. And I saw, holy crap, when I started really investigating what Jaime was and how... You know, I said this to you before. People, people have said when they interview me, wow, Radia, you seem so intelligent. <laughs> you know, thanks. Um, so it has nothing to do with intelligence. It has nothing to do with IQ or education. It has to do with human nature and it has to do with being in the right or the wrong place at the right or wrong time. So the malignant narcissist seeks out what kind of person or people or group they can manipulate then they figure out how to manipulate them so that they can gratify themselves and it is all about self gratification and how far they will go depends on how much food the followers give them and most of them are cowards most of them are they they will never do the bidding themselves but they will they will coax their followers to show their devotion to extremism. And and the more extreme they are in showing their devotion, they literally malignant narcissists are sexual sadists and they get off on that. And the more their followers become violent and extremists and whatever, the more they literally sexually get off on that. And I can guarantee you there's somebody down in Mar-a-Lago who gets off Got off on the January 6th, literally couldn't stop it because he was, would, would, (laughs) we now know he would rewind the tapes of the most violent actions, you know, and the biggest flags and the biggest screaming, you know, he literally sexually gets off on that. Sorry, but he does. That is really dangerous. So this is a pathology. This is a mental disorder not just a character flaw
0: i think you answered that well i mean trump's probably a very uh you know visceral image we can all very much relate to um i'm i'm much more concerned on the smaller scale because uh there's actually a great book called the cult of trump um that's a re- that i highly recommend um but uh but what's fascinating is he didn't come out of nowhere right like <laughs> and uh and, and a lot of uh, the group that I used to be a part of, evangelicals, voted for him.
1: So that's a really good point. You know, and, and let me let me uh, just interject here for a minute, because people identify with cults as being brainwashed. And I say we have to be very careful of these words. The literal definition of brainwash means that you have been radicalized by either prison or torture. None of us were radicalized. We came in already looking for what he had to offer, right? He just basically um, formulated it, but we already came in with those beliefs. so you're right, John. The evangelicals uh is behind the puppet that is you know trump so yeah. You know, as I I said to you, and Putin would refer to Trump as a useful idiot, and he is. He doesn't believe any of the things he says. Believe me, he doesn't. He only believes in Trump. That's it. That's all he cares about. But he will act like a Christian or act like whatever you need him to be, he will be that, right? And so those particular people, especially the evangelicals and especially You know, we had talked about Jeff Charlotte's The Family, and we talked about C Street, you and I did, before we got on. And um, this is a very kind of very twisted evangelical group that has been emerging and getting larger in the last 80 years And they have kind of taken their indoctrination and their dogma to a whole new level of, of what they, of exceptionalism. And Trump fits perfectly into that, that character or that leader that they needed to get their base aroused so that they could get more power.
0: Yeah, I mean, exceptionalism, in my opinion, is basically group narcissism. I mean, it's it's more exactly. or less the same thing. Exactly. Uh, it's the same thing as nationalism. It's it's right. all the same thing. Um, let me. There's another word we've used that I wanted to find real quick, and that's uh sociopathic. Um, the, the you know technically antisocial personality disorder, um, which is sometimes called sociopathy. It's a mental disorder in which a person uh, constantly shows no regard for right and wrong and ignores the rights and feelings of others. Um, and I, and I actually also have worked with people with this disorder, um, but I worked with people who are on what's sometimes called the low, en- low functioning end of that spectrum. So meaning you can spot their attempts to manipulate from a mile away. <laughs> um, it's re so it's not very effective. Um, but what's scarier for me to admit is I know in my young adulthood, I showed some sociopathic tendencies Um you know, in clearer hindsight, I can say it's not that I had no empathy or no sense of right or wrong or anything like that. I was just so apathetic and depressed that it was really like a good um, or, or bad uh, mental state that like was a uh, made sociopathy almost tempting. Like, well, why not just fuck all these people? Like, why should I care about any of it? Um, and it's taken some work, you know, to undo uh, all of that. And, you know, it's still a journey. I'm not done with it. Um, but this leads to kind of a, an interesting open-ended question, like how much of narcissism or sociopathy is nature and how much is nurture?
1: Well, that is a good question. And you are the kind of somewhat expert on that. So, but, but here's the thing that's interesting. Um, and I had mentioned, um, the book by Martha Stout, the sociopath next door, and Martha Stout, Ph.D., her submission was that one out of 25 Americans are sociopathic, which is a little frightening. So, and to what degree is it, and how can it be fed? So, the combination of the narcissistic sociopath is really the most dangerous combination, um, because when you have a follower that feeds So you've got, you've got nature and then you've got nurture and it is the followers that feeds the narcissistic sociopath and develops it. And so it's like a craving. It's like an addiction. And so the more that craving has been satiated, which it's insatiable. So, you know, that's a, (laughs) that's a nowhere tale, but the more you feed it, the more hungry They become to the point where sociopathy can become dangerous. Now, feed that when you have a religious group that feeds your ideas that you are exceptional, that you are chosen, that everybody else is just, you know, we've got religious wars right now going on all over this planet, and we are literally slaughtering human beings because You know, they're infidels or they're, you know, or from, you know, the Christian standpoint, how much mass murder have we done under the same name, the name of God, the name of exceptionalism? Um, so when you start to be indoctrinated into an idea that people are subhuman, that they are less than you, it's easier for you to commit genocide or if you are not an actual participant of it, you can just close your eyes and ears and look the other way and not say anything. But deep down inside, you know what's going on. But when you see them as subhuman or less, or that they, for the, whatever the indoctrination is, for the goal of the, quote, kingdom on earth, you're willing to sacrifice, or, and I use the there's a whole chapter on QAnon and the phenomenon of QAnon and the phenomenon of Satan. When you see that people are emissaries, or as Poor Kingsinger's family called him, um, uh, a in the what do you say that the the, the uh, tribe of Satan or whatever. When you believe that a that there's a Satan and be that it is your job to help Jesus or God, because God apparently can't do it himself, thwart the evil one and all of the minions of Satan. It's easy for you to do atrocious things. So we're seeing this happen in our country, and QAnon is a huge one. What, what have they become? Satan worshiping baby-eating pedophiles. Well, When you start defining people like that, then it is not only easy to eradicate them, but it is your duty to eradicate them because they're subhuman. This is why we could, you know, see in history, this is why the Germans could eradicate 11 million people because they did not believe that they were human, that they were subhuman. So this kind of indoctrination feeds the sociopathy in all of us. Um, And we justify genocide.
0: Yeah. There's almost a gaslighting element to it too, right? Where it's like, if if you were able to say these points to someone who is either in a group that believes they're exceptional or a narcissist, they would easily spin it back on you. It's like, well, you view narcissists as subhuman, you know, like you would look at what you're doing or, you know... try to twist it that way um totally. which to their point which is weak uh but and not really a point but more just defensiveness um i think you know many people do associate these ideas of narcissism and sociopathy with like monster characters you know like these hor- like hitler like trump um or you know in some cases just anyone who makes them uncomfortable um but but you know it it is a personality disorder now we've already touched on anyone can have these tendencies. Um, it doesn't have to be like a former, you know, diagnosis. Like anyone can have these tendencies and it's really good to recognize the tendencies in yourself. Um, but is there a better way to understand and recognize sociopathic or narcissistic behavior than just, Oh, this makes me uncomfortable. So they're like, what are some good ways to, you know, take note and figure out if it's that kind of behavior?
1: Well, you know, you go back to your original question, um, is it nurture or nature? And I think, um, that there's, there is a element of nature in there. You will typically see the more natural, <clears throat> the ones that really have some, uh, mental disorder. You'll see them in smaller. This may be in a spouse or it may be in a, um, in a boss or in a in a smaller group where they just are naturally more sociopathic so you know where we start to see where uh nature and nurture overlap is when the the natural sociopath or the natural narcissist um finds their followers, finds their feeding trough. And that's where they may have these tendencies, but if they have followers, and the bigger the followers are, and the more sycophantic the followers are, the more you'll feed that insatiable urge in the natural sociopathic tendency or the natural uh, malignant narcissist. So, So yeah, you can see this. There's a great great um I don't know if you've seen it there are two series I want to turn you on to if you haven't seen them one is Dirty John have you seen that series very good.
0: Very
1: whoa good. yeah especially the podcast but you know the first one that's a real true story of of a narcissistic sociopath and so there's a case where that's a one-on-one situation and I would say that is nature I would say that that guy was born that way. And, you know, he just started to find um avenues where he could uh, feed that tendency in him. But then there's another – this is a documentary, and I don't know if you've seen this one, but this is really crazy. It's called The Push. Have you seen that? I have not. Oh, John, check this out. It's on Netflix, and it's called The Push. And it basically – is the filmmaker set up a situation. It's completely contrived, completely deliberate. And it's it's nothing, it's no surprise. He tells you from the beginning what he's doing. And he sets up this series of events where he's inviting people to a, uh, this is a job opportunity, right? So he's inviting people to answer this ad for a job interview. And so these are just regular people, regular old, you know, Joe's nice guy, nice, nice person, nice woman, etc. And he puts them through a series in this job interview of circumstances that leads them at the end to literally pushing a stranger off a building to their death. Wow. Whoa. And of course, it's all rigged, so the person does not know that the person is not going to die. They don't. They're harnessed and what have you. But the question is, would this nice, regular old guy literally be pushed to the point of killing a stranger? It is unbelievable. It's really, really good. It's called The Push. So anyway, so those are the things that that beg these big questions you know what is a cult what is brainwashing what is you know and and hopefully i kind of in my book i try and you know take you down those scenarios and and help us think the reason why i wrote this book john is because i did a lot of q and a's uh for the for the film and i had people who literally were scratching their heads going well you know, some people said, yeah, I'd for sure join that group, you know. And others would go, ah, I'd never be that stupid, right? Really? Really? What would it take? And that's what the push is all about. That's what, you know, what all of these interesting stories are about. Uh, it, what would it take for you to be that gullible? I don't know. We do a lot of things that we have justified, as being, Oh, I'm not indoctrinated. I'm, this is my free will. I thought it was my free will too.
0: That's the paradox of cults is you are always free to go. That is like the paradox. And um, yeah, I think one of the things you said early on that I've actually said myself, especially when I first released my book was um, people were asking, so what's the markers of the cult? Well, I have my alliterative stuff, right? Colts control, contain, convert. But I really said the best, indicator is leaders and followers if there's a two distinct like very distinct group uh, and one is the leaders and two is the followers that's a pretty good measure i think that's also interesting that you kind of uh met that's a way to spot narcissism too isn't it like well is there a power dynamic where one is subservient to the other because narcissists have to have that right they have to because that's they need that attention and stuff
1: right however however it can be the leader leader follower but it also can be followers of an ideology where the leader is no longer there maybe they die maybe they're gone maybe whatever but the ideology carries forth and so I talk about um, the difference between Socratic teaching and non-Socratic teaching. So in Socratic teaching, basically you throw an idea on the table and we argue about it and we voice our opinions and we add and subtract and walk away with our own conclusion. But if it's non-Socratic, if you are, if it is dogmatic, if it is an indoctrination, then if you are not allowed to question, um, then I would start to be really, really, um, concerned because that is where it becomes a control issue, a control of your mind. And there may be a leader, one leader, or there may be leaders that, that are like me, the elder in the group. You know, like if Jaime died tomorrow and the group was still allowed, uh, still allowed, you know, was still around, the elders would take on that position. And so very often the leader, uh, not very often, they always create a hierarchy in their following. And they do that and they start to groom and start to bring out the narcissism in the levels of their hierarchy. So Jaime had his immediate, what I would say his cabinet, uh, the people who were with him on a daily basis who were also part of the, part of the scam. They knew. They were part of the parlor tricks. He couldn't do it alone. So they knew the secrets behind the closed door, just like the people who, uh, who were cabinet members of Trump and then they get out and then they write the book. Thank you very much. Right? Yeah. So those are the people that know they're in the top tier. Then the second tier also, this is the Senate. And we were uh, the elders in this group, uh, the initiates. We were like the Senate. We were also revered by the ones who were lower than us. So in that way, he was feeding our own narcissism. And yeah. so they well.
0: Narcissists can beget narcissists, right? Exactly. Um, especially yeah. in a group think setting. And this is this is actually a big issue I have with uh, evangelicalism. Is I can't tell you how many times they're like, "I'll you know I don't actually, <laughs> frankly, I don't bring up stories that are like super salacious about Christianity because I find it largely unhelpful. Um, because typically, what ends up happening is they say, "Well, didn't they, that guy got removed?" Or you know, like that was a that he he was an abuser who snuck into the system I'm like no the system creates and breeds abusers like um and that's that's where that's what I care about because it did it to me you know like I it did it to me and it, it, I'm glad I got out when I did so I you know wasn't worse but I'm like man like I, I and you know having worked with sociopaths and narcissists um I can tell you they can they can be great people i know that sounds crazy to say but they can be so entertaining it's so oh, yeah. fun to be around like and you can even love them and have real genuine loving moments with them
1: oh yeah um i, I love but, timing yeah I did. i'm really? sure i'm sure
0: yeah and so so i think that's really important um but but to to my maybe detractors no you know uh point um the maybe the most obvious and destructive tendency of narcissists is how harmful their deception can be to those exactly. around them. Exactly. Because yeah. most most people, most people want to believe that individuals have good intentions. And so narcissists are great at finding how just how far they can push those boundaries to serve their own desires and impulses. I should say even say impulses probably more than desires. So what do you think attracts narcissists to leadership?
1: well because first of all they see themselves as greater than anybody else so of course they look at you like you're just an idiot you know you you need to be controlled because you know because i'm so much smarter and i'm so much more you know powerful than than you could ever dream of being so you know they'll be attracted to that role because it's a natural place for them to go. Um, and it's also a good way to get sycophants, which is what they need. Um, so if they're clever enough and most of them are very charismatic, they are, they're very, very charismatic. Uh, and they wouldn't be for the most part, they wouldn't be ugly trolls that couldn't speak and couldn't do anything. Most of them are, you know, attractive and uh, clever and and uh, smart and funny and whatever, whatever the group needs them to be. Um, they'll become that. And they're skilled at learning those things. So they learn what their followers need and they become that. I said they're chameleons. And so, and they'll There's also, and
0: they they also need a mirror, right? Like it goes back to the tragedy of narcissists, like people now are their mirror, so they get to like see how people react and get off on it, like you were saying exactly earlier, that kind of thing
1: exactly know? and what and when the leader becomes or when the followers become like the leader, they get off on that. they yeah. do, they get off on it, and that is the da- <laughs> the dangerous, you know. Consideration is because they, they the follower and the leader start to mirror each other, and so one of the reasons why the why the followers so attracted to the leader is because, and it's kind of how I described it, and uh, Adamo describes it in his, uh, and uh, Berkowitz describes it as. Kind of the difference between the American demagogue and European demagogues or demagogues in Asia and whatever is the populace looks at those demagogues as a father figure or a paternal figure. But in this country, um, it's more of a, of a reflection, a mirror of, it's, I use the example of a kitten looking in the mirror and seeing a lion. It's like the leader becomes a reflection of what they want to be, usually out of their own insecurity and their own, you know, uh, lack of self-worth. So when they see someone that plays like them, that acts like them and, and, you know, crude, crude and, you know, chest-thumping machismo man, Right, um, that is a reflection of what they feel inside themselves, so they will put the leader up there again, like a kitten looking in the mirror and seeing a lion, and so they'll keep them up there because they'll keep that reflection of what they think they see of themselves. Mm.
0: yeah, I think you're nailing it, and I also think there's another way to look at it where you could say that you know attraction to power over others is usually a sign of insecurity on some level. And then attraction to powerful people is usually a sign of anxiety, right? Where it's like, I, I I want someone to like lead me, you know?
1: Yeah, exactly. So you've got two, yeah, you've got two types of people and you know, that is, you'll see a mixed bag. That's why I say in my third section, I give three types of people who joined cults, um, and and this is kind of what we're seeing with the evangelicals um, in the family. Uh, you know, if you read the family or you even look at the documentary, you'll you'll understand that they have made um, the model of Jesus not the Lamb of God, but they have taken King David as the archetype, the machismo man who was. You know, not only the philanderer but the murderer, and he became the the macho man. Uh, that's the kind of Jesus they want, not the Lamb of God, but the wolf. And they yeah, worship or people. even
0: the even the guy with the thigh tattoo who comes at the end of times to kick ass. I mean, like that's the that's the the Jesus the the that they picture. And and evangelicalism, you know, insecure and anxious people are not only welcome but they're told that their insecurities and anxieties can be healed for free and for eternity. Exactly. So I here's here's a question that comes out of that idea. Do you think that cults or cult leaders prey on especially vulnerable people or the vulnerabilities in all of us?
1: Well, we all have vulnerabilities. If you think you don't, you're lying to yourself. But she You know, like with Jaime, I can only tell you, I can only tell you my direct experience, um, with our cult leader. People have trouble watching the film and going, you know, I'd never fall for that. Well, you have to understand that it was a 20 year frog in warm water experience. You know, it was like if he at the end of that film looked and acted like that in the beginning, he would have had very few, um, followers, but he wasn't, you know, in the beginning, he was, you know, he was really good looking and really charismatic and funny and all these things. And we wanted, we were all looking, as I said, we were looking for that transcendental experience and we were looking for the, we were reading a lot of, um, Eastern, uh, Stories, Paramahansa Yogananda and Ramana Maharshi and Ananda Moyama and all of these great Eastern saints. So we were reading about master disciple relationship. And we were through our understanding of those readings, we were willing to become that. So I, I use the term Um, in my later chapters, I refer to us as the Navy SEALs of spirituality. So it's hard to say when you say vulnerable, and let's just take the Navy SEALs, for example. Hardly, you would hardly characterize them as being vulnerable, right? But why would they allow themselves to be subjugated to such Abuse, you know, such, oh my God, you know, um, like us, we allowed ourselves to be subject to real um, mental, emotional, and spiritual gymnastics. So, vulnerability is an interesting term. Were we weak? On the contrary, because our goal was to transcend the ego. So, bring it on, put me through it. You know, like a Navy SEAL, put me through it. And can I do that? So, you know, it's interesting. And every group has their own vulnerabilities. Our vulnerability was our desire. And our desire to, as I said, we weren't interested in worshiping the Buddha. We were called the Buddha field because we our desire was to become the Buddha field. To become the Buddha And so we weren't interested in worshiping. So we're not in that category of, you know, weak people that wanted, I won't say all of us, some of them in the Buddha field were, but we originally were not looking for the daddy figure to take care of us. But after a while, that role became quite comfortable. When you started to have someone in your life that you trusted that was higher than you, greater than you, you started to give up your, you started, it started to become easier not to make decisions in your life. Just hand them over to the guy that you think is, has got it all, has got all the answers. So it just becomes easy. So you basically become lazy. <laughs> so it's, that's a very complex answer and everybody has their own. So what's your vulnerability? I, I don't know. To us, our vulnerability was, um, not believing in ourselves after a while, believing that there was somebody mm. actually more superior than us.
0: I, man, I, I'm, I don't think you could have answered that question any better. Um, because that's just so potent. It's, because i agree, i just i'm i'm reeling with how much i agree with you that the the vulnerabilities yeah it's sometimes associated with weakness not at all and like insecurity or anxiety not at all i'm not saying that's like a, a weak thing it's something that we all experience and manifest in very different ways and a true and a truly you know high functioning narcissist or sociopath will be able to prey on that vulnerability um and the and what makes it them scary, if you want to use that word, is how they uh you know often can figure out people's vulnerabilities very quick. So I tend to act. I tend to actually go that like cults don't prey on, don't look for vulnerable people, like, oh, this person's weak or whatever. They go, what's this person's deal? And they work from there.
1: Yeah, what do they, what do they want? I mean, I, I always say, oh my God, I say in the movie too, he was a hypnotherapist. That's how he made his living. For God's sakes, we handed him our psyche every week and paid for it, you know? So we showed him all our weaknesses. We showed him all the skeletons in our closet and he used it against us. And as you know, as a pastoral counselor and whatever, that is so unethical. That is so basically in psychology, it is illegal to, you know, learn about your patient and then use it against them. This was the ultimate betrayal of what he did with us. Yes, he was a sexual assault uh, and preyed on the men, but for the women, that wasn't our reality. So where did he abuse us? Oh, my God. he And this is how he would use it. Like, he would, every time I question him, like, you know, if he said something or did something and I went to him and questioned it, well, Radia, you are just projecting your father on me. You remember how he used to blah, blah, blah. And he would convince me that he was right. And I would go, oh, yeah. Oh, that's Yeah. You know, and I was willing to surrender all of my pain and my past and my ego and all of the things that make up me. Well, how damn convenient that was. So he was a, it was, we, it, it was self sealing for us. We gave him everything, you know, every human possible vulnerability we may have had. And the worst thing about it is he never let you graduate. So he would teach you the goal and we would all strive for the goal, but nobody ever reached it except for him. So that's why we were there for 20 some odd years, still working on the goal because we, we could never reach it. And as soon as you did or tried, he would put you down publicly or in his private sessions. He would tear you apart and he would prey on those weaknesses that you knew about even if even if you didn't consider like say yeah my father was abusive I talk about that and so even though I I literally created a very strong personality because of that abuse he would take me back as a child right oh remember when your father did that you're just projecting this on me you see (laughs) I mean, he was so good at what he did,
0: and it's sound- and and all the while sounding like he's on your team. Right? Of
1: course, on my team, yeah. and just helping me to come to realization. You know, and I'll tell you, John, when I left, he knew he knew that he had to keep me particularly because he knew he knew all of the abuses of my past. So they were all mostly with men. So he had to be the benevolent man in my life. And he always played that for me. So he was abusive to others, but he never was abusive to me in that sense. Now, when I left, he tried to have me, quote, taken out three times, plotted to have me killed or hurt in some way. Um, And why? Because he knew That all of the abuse and whatever that created this strong personality, he knew that if he ever made an enemy of me, that I was dangerous to him. (laughs) Really dangerous. Not really. I loved him. I didn't want to hurt him. Um, I really didn't. But but he was afraid once I was gone that I could be. And I knew a lot of secrets about Senor Gomez that no one knew because I did all of his legal work and I had his birth certificate and I had his other legal papers and all of that. So once I got out, oh my God, then I am a real threat to him. But before I got out, he was the benevolent man in my life. I loved him. He was, I didn't see him as my master, but I did see him as my benevolent uncle. And he, even in his, in his worst narcissistic, paranoid, funky way, I still loved him. I was disappointed in him, but I still loved him, damn it, because he was so charming and so loving to me. How I got my name Radhya? Okay, so in Hindu, there's um, Krishna, which is their equivalent of, he's a God, he's a demigod or god, and so Krishna's lover was Radha, R A D H A, and so I w- he he renamed all of us mostly, but I was leaving a cleansing session one day, and he said goodbye, my Radha, which was Krishna's lover, Krishna's consort. So that was an incredibly personal and and. Uh, very honorable name to get, Radha, right? And so what he was saying to me as he was flirting with this romance of I am Krishna and you are Radha, right? And then after that afternoon, he called and he said, you know, I want to tweak it a bit. I want to call you Radha because I don't want people to think that you're Hindu. But see, the 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 romance was still in the name, you know. Now, the reason why he changed it, John, the reason why he changed it is because the guy he happened to have been sexually assaulting at the time, he also called Rada, and he didn't want him to be jealous. Did I know this? No, I didn't find it out for almost 15 years. But that's the truth. So that was his game with me. And it worked monks say he made me special and it worked because he knew he had to make me special to keep me under control good job well and
0: right and we yeah, he, he he found the way and and all i can think about is just my stories growing up in church like that uh, now is it as salacious or traumatic sometimes uh but not all the time um sometimes it's more subtle but there's little things of just like you know, who, who are the elders and deacons at a church who is given the privilege of being the janitor who's, you know, like you will see really, you have to look. I mean, if you're not looking for it, you'll miss it. Yeah. But yeah, you have to look. But one of the things I don't talk enough about on this podcast is the idea of conversionism. Yeah. And I, I talk about it in my book a good bit, but in my opinion, it is by definition sociopathic because in the philosophy of conversionism, you're obviously trying to convert others to your way of thinking and that's and that's a mission of yours so people are in in that philosophy people are a means to an end but not valuable in and of themselves so am am i too harsh in saying that or is that accurate
1: well you know it's really tricky and people you know they use the uh the term recruiting and when you're in it you don't think of yourself. Now, some people, I know the the Christian whatever, but we did not think of ourselves as recruiters. We were just having, well, in the beginning, we were having such a good time that we would just automatically want to invite our friends, right? So we started out, well, when I first knew him, there was four of us. Then when he finally moved to LA, there was 15 of us. And then each one of us sort of invited a friend, hey, come to Satsang. So then there's 30, then there's 60, then there's, that's how it grew. But it wasn't, we were not subject like, uh, a lot of people in groups or in religious groups that, you know, like the, oh my God, like the, uh, the, uh, the missionaries and the, um, uh, Latter day Saints, you know, that actually go out on a mission. You know, to recruit and to convert people, um, we didn't we didn't see it that way um, because remember it was all about the techniques and it was all about he used to say this is your divine birthright and so people would notice us and we were different we were you know you can see in the film they some people called us the cult of the beautiful people because uh, we were we were really, really health conscious, like super, super health conscious. And most of us, and there was a lot of gay men in the group. So they were, you know, just naturally, some of them are just very uh physically beautiful. And so we were having so much fun and we were singing and dancing. And you'll see that in the movie, you know, we're Splashing in the water and playing and doing all this stuff, so we were automatically attractive to people. So their curiosity, they would come up. But he, after he you know left uh, Los Angeles and became very paranoid, he shut things down. We were clandestine and we were not open at all. So we were not actively. I mean, it used to be in L.A. We we would put um, a an ad in the L.A. LA Weekly, come one, come all. After a while, he realized that that's not a good idea. We were inviting too many strangers and too many weird people, so he shut all of that down. Um, and so it took a long time towards the end to get into the Buddha field. Some people, we would, the elders would hold these kinds of satsangs on Saturdays. And this is where all the newbies had to come in and they had to be screened for a long time sometimes they would we would they would come listen to us and we would share about the meditation practices and share about you know transcendental experiences and all of that and and then share about the master but they wouldn't see him or meet him for years it would take them it wasn't like, oh, you've got to come in, you've got to do this. No, no. He was extremely paranoid. So he didn't want a bunch of strangers in his life at all. And that's why we stayed so small, because we were only about 150 of us for years. Um, so it was a very special kind of group. And you were screened to see if you were willing to be a devotee. And it was really in the beginning for everybody, it was a devotee to God. And he was kind of secondary. That was the narrative.
0: The parallels between all of this and evangelicalism is actually more one-to-one than some people might realize. So first off, uh, yeah, you're right. There's totally the mission element, the missionary stuff, all that is there. But there's also, frankly, a more popular version of evangelicalism that just wants to make seeker-friendly churches, which are these just have a good time and other people will want to have a good time, too but you know what is really uh regulated and like that not everyone's accepted into is like bible colleges and seminaries and the people who are allowed to teach stuff. Yeah. So I think I think conversionism is yeah, sociopathic, but there's still like the protective um what most people would probably describe as culty stuff that's that goes on, you know, um in, yeah. in plain sight. Uh but that, but your story is such an interesting like microcosm of all of that, isn't
1: it? Well, see, that's the interesting thing about my experience. Um, because my experience was, A, from the beginning. In other words, I was in the embryonic stages of a cult and all the way through it. So that's one. And two, most people, or a lot of people, uh, that are in cults are not in it for as long as I was, so they don't see the, and, and the cults get bigger. Like, for example, um, so, you, I'm sure you are aware of, um, oh god, what's his name? The, um, combating cult mind control, um,
0: Steve Hassan, is that who you're thinking of?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Steve Hassan. Thank yep. you. Okay. A yep. little senior moment there. Okay. So Steve Hassan, I, I read his books and, you know, I, I, and he's the one that wrote The Cult of Trump, uh, which I also read. And, you know, so Hassan is, he made his living out of cults, but Hassan was only in the Moonies for two years. I kind of look at him like, what a lightweight, (laughs) you know. (laughs) It's like, first of all, the Moonies was huge, still is. And to have that up close and personal experience with the leader, like Sun Young Moon, he didn't have. So he has a different perspective, not that he doesn't have a perspective because he does, and then he went on to uh, become... Uh, very versed in cult and study it and become, get a degree in psychology and all of that. That's all fine. But the unique thing that I had was I was in, in it, in its embryonic stage and I was way up close and personal to the leader on a daily basis. I was not only up close and personal, but I was an advisor to him. So, so I got the ins and outs of this guy, right? Which makes my, Book a little bit unique in that sense because mostly big cults or even like the evangelical church and all of that, you know, it has its layers and not everybody gets to see the behind the curtain to see the little man behind the behind the drapes, but I did. So I got to study it from that standpoint. I got to study the birth of it and how how it becomes what it becomes. So, you know, with like the idea of conversion, for example, when you're in it and you are having a good time, this feeling uh, when you're programmed or indoctrinated to be exceptional, you feel like you owe it to people. It becomes your responsibility to indoctrinate them because you're so exceptional and you feel that everyone should be as exceptional as you are, Right. So you're here not to indoctrinate them or convert them out of some control, but more because it's your obligation to, you know, you're here as a, as an emissary of God, you know, to show them where, you know, where their divine relationship can be, you know, for their, for their best good. That's why it's so damn dangerous, <laughs> because, you know, you can really go off the deep end and you can't, this is where your sociopathy starts to grow, because you can feel that this is a benevolent thing that you're doing. And, you know, you've got to save the world. Um And sometimes that can be really ugly. Um But you're doing, and that's why you, yeah, Messiah complex, not only that, but you can't after a while, if you are so indoctrinated in your belief, you no longer have shame. You cannot be shamed because of that exceptionalism, because who's shaming you? Someone who isn't in the know, someone who just doesn't know, you know, so you're, you're not shameable anymore. That's dangerous, (laughs) you know these are the traps these are the
0: the traps agreed and and the shame it would only be internalized and that is not ever healthy because those shame needs to be explored in a healthy setting but you but not only that but you wouldn't be held accountable um thank you that's such a good answer to to this conversionism thing uh i I, I wish i could talk to you for about three more hours but i fear we just be be talking to each other and no one else will be listening Um, a long
1: time i haven't even had dinner yet
0: all right oh goodness you poor thing um i'm I'm
1: enjoying it i get into this conversation
0: yeah me too um probably why we do it for a living huh Mm -hmm. uh what is the uh I, i wanted to ask you what's because I know a lot of my listeners have either left an evangelical cult or are thinking about leaving an evangelical cult or are curiously listening. Um, you know, what is, what was the hardest part of recovering from the extreme stuff you went through and what advice would you give to people leaving different cult groups?
1: Okay. So first of all, if you've been in it long enough, you cut your, you cut your ties and, and what I say for people who either have family members who are in it that can't get out or whatever, um, you know, whatever the scenario is, whether it's you and you're trying to get out or you have family members, um, first of all, know that there is life outside of the group. You're, you're led to believe that there isn't. That it that you are the exceptional and your group is exceptional and everybody else. Uh, I, I, we were so indoctrinated to believe that the world outside of the group was the dead world. We even referred to ourselves as holy company. And so the outside world was the world of the unconscious. We were the conscious people. We were the ones that were devoted to consciousness. And so anyone else outside was unconscious. So the image of leaving would be going into the desert of the dead, of the unconscious. That's a really scary place to be. Do not believe it, okay? That's, first of all, it's bullshit. There is life outside of the group, and there are a lot of very beautiful people out there. Find yourself those people, because you're going to need some support. Everything that I was afraid to leave that took me 11 years to leave came true. Everything. I was demonized. I was ostracized. I was turned away. I was shunned by my lovers, by my family, by my best friends. It it takes a tremendous amount of courage. And I honor anybody who has the courage to do it. And I understand that it takes that much courage to do. But you can do it. You can. And you will find that if you see this as a courageous act, not as a weakness, but as a courageous act, follow and hold on to that strength because you're right. Whatever your intuition has been telling you this whole time is right. And their whole goal is to suppress your intuition. Don't. You know, that little voice in your gut, that little voice in your heart and your head that tells you there's something off here. Listen to that because you have been trained not to listen to that. You've been trained to listen to whoever the leader is or the indoctrination. So that's one. Two, if you've got somebody there, don't (laughs) all be a landing for them. That's all. Don't try and shame them out of it or make them feel, you know, belittled because they're in a cult. That never works because the cult has successfully indoctrinated you into being exceptional. So nothing anyone can say. They're all, they're all the world of the dead. What do they know? So don't think that you can get them by shaming them or uh, ostracizing them be a place for them to land because when i landed john the only thing i had was my cat i lost everything
0: <laughs> i'm laughing because that's literally identical to my story but yeah really? <laughs> and, and Seriously,
1: continue. cats are really important dogs Very. are too but yes. you know seriously i lost 150 friends in one day i lost a 20-year relationship in in a very short period of time, I went bankrupt. I lost my clinic. I lost my house. I lost everything. And I lost the most important man and the most important people in my life in one day. And I not only lost them, but they demonized me and ostracized me. And I knew that that day was going to come one of these days. And it did. But guess what? When they started trickling out, and for me, it happened rather quickly because our Buddha field in Austin, it fell like dominoes. So when they did, there was a whole bunch of really, we had innies and outies. So there was a war in Austin. And, uh, so try and, try and grab onto others who are also feeling the same thing you are, um, so that you can support each other. Um, because they are still your family and help them. Don't judge them. Help them. Don't judge anyone coming out. It won't work. And that's what they're afraid of is to be judged. (laughs) So judged by the group and then judged by the family members on the outside. It's just a big judging (laughs) clusterfuck. Um, so you're going to have to face that. Sorry, but that's usually the way it goes. It's okay. You'll survive it. Time does heal. It does. Um, I say when you get out, try and avoid looking for relationships because there's a PTSD I did not know that I had. I was so busy trying to survive that I didn't know that I was in a PTSD. So I immediately glommed on to a relationship that I could get as a sort of save me, you know, from loneliness, save me from my pain, save me from whatever. And it did not bow well. It did not go over big. So try not, and they say this to alcoholics too, you know, don't try and suddenly run into a relationship that can save you from your pain. That will come too, but heal first. Try and find professionals who are versed in this, such as John, such as yourself, uh, pastoral counselors or counselors that are familiar with narcissism and familiar with cults and things like that. Um, look for those professionals that can literally, if you can seek professional help, do so. I couldn't afford it until I turned 65 (laughs) when I could afford Medicare. And I finally, uh, finally got therapy, um, which was what it's been now 15 years. <laughs> um, better late than never, but you know, it, it helped. Um, try not to self-medicate. We have a, ten- it was funny because we were so strict in our laws, in our rules. They weren't they weren't laws and subjugation we willingly accepted our lifestyle so we didn't do anything we didn't do drugs we didn't do red meat we didn't do sugar or dairy or or any you know caffeine anything like that for like we were trendy 30 years ago um so what happened when we got out is we were all like parochial school, school kids on spring break. I mean, we were all this people.
0: Happens to, uh, this happens to a lot of Bible college kids. who Oh, who totally.
1: Bible <laughs> totally. You know, next thing you know, we're like, Woo-hoo! drug, sex, and rock and roll, baby. You know, so try not to do that. Or if you do, try not to abuse yourself in that. Because you 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 kind of feel this, I'm going to make up for lost time, damn it. You know, you stole my best years. Well, true, possibly. But don't get carried away because then what we do is we start to self-medicate because we don't know that we're in trauma. Right, so don't use those things to self-medicate. Um, do it in moderation. Don't do it with guilt. We're, we're trained to believe that those things are, you know, things to make us feel guilty. Don't have guilt about it, but be wise about it. Know that hey, there might be some shit going on psychologically that you might be looking for refuge. Don't fall into that because you're just going to go from one trap into another. Um, so be courageous be thoughtful in yourself and with others also be um you know introspective like whoa (laughs) what was it like i did you know my the best healing i did was write my book so i got creative i'm a creative person anyway so i'm an artist and a musician and a writer it turns out and so I started to involve myself in creative endeavors that were that were healthy, not unhealthy behavior. Um, so I wrote and illustrated a children's novella, and I I developed a uh, web television network with twelve channels devoted to natural health and green living. Um, I wrote a sci-fi novel. Um, I wrote this book. Um, I danced. I joined a band. I'm a musician, so I joined a rock and roll or actually created a rock and roll band. So, so things like creative outlets are really, really good for you to get back into the world, you know? Um, so that was another thing that I did. Healthy things. I did a lot of walks in nature. Um, because I was rebelling against meditation because meditation represented the, represented the, the control, uh, of my life. Um, I, I stopped it for a while. It was kind of like rebelling against it. I'm not going to read the Bible. I'm not going to pray. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to read. I'm not going to be spiritual anymore. (laughs) Well, okay. You can do that, but don't do that as a reaction. Um, do it if you need to, to set yourself free of that, then by all means, but replace it with something. What I replaced it with was walking. So instead of meditation, I would walk in nature every day. Um, music. That's a really good, beautiful way. Whether you're a musician or not, listen to music. Uh, let them, let that heal your soul. Um, you know, find people that are, not in groups, but, but good people that you, that you can tell in your heart are going to be there for you to listen to your stories, to listen to your pain. John is listening. I listen. You know, we who have gone through that, um, you know, listen to these podcasts. These are conversations. You know, the reason why we get into these. I said to my therapist, when all this craziness was going on with Trump and all this, I was I was in another PTSD. And I said to my therapist, I'm paralyzed. I can't yeah. control this. I can't stop this. And I see this train wreck happening with my country. What do I do? I'm paralyzed. She said, no, you're not. Do what you do. Write yeah. about it. Talk about it. You know, have these conversations with people who understand it like you, John. This is great for us, you know, because this is how we start to understand our world and the choices that we made, you know, and we're, we're there. I'm there doing, still doing selfless service for like I did in my devotion. My selfless service is spending two hours talking to you tonight, (laughs) you know, loving it. This is part of my Dharma. Um, yeah. I don't owe you anything and you don't owe me anything. We're just, Correct. Yeah. we're just doing this because we know, <laughs> you know, we know guys, we know. And so we're mm-hmm. here for you, you know?
0: Yeah. Well put. I can't add anything to that. Uh, Radia, where can people buy your book, find out more about you? Go ahead and plug away.
1: Yeah. So definitely buy the book. Um, I tried to make it as entertaining as possible because I'm a researcher, and so that's what I do uh, in my work. I'm a biochemical analyst and do a lot of research, and so that's what I do. So I read a whole bunch of dry stuff and hopefully deliver it in a really entertaining way so that you don't have to read the Diagnostic Manual of Mental Disorders or other textbooks that you otherwise wouldn't read. So I do that, and then I put it in a humorous and entertaining way. So I hope that you can get all, you know, I have what, 284 citations and four pages of bibliography. So you don't have to slog through all of that. Read my book because I hopefully make it a fun journey for you. So you can get it on Amazon. You can get it at Barnes and Noble. You can get it also in Audibles in my voice, uh, which is fun for those who don't read or people who drive a lot. You can also go to my website, which is Radia, spell it right, R-A-D-H-I-A-G-L-E-I-S. They always want to throw that H everywhere. <laughs> they always do. It's R-A-D, like rad. Um, yeah. Radia. Radhia. Kept, Rad-hia. Yeah, rad, Radhia, exactly. And I kept the name, by the way, not because of him. I kept it because I liked it. That's all. Um, I love it. Yeah. So, uh, com and I've written a bunch of articles, uh, also that are kind of fun. Some of them are political. Some of them are not. I'm going to put this on my, I'm going to put this conversation I have, I'm having with John. I'm going to post that on my website under media. So, you know, connect with me. You can connect on, uh, Facebook, RoddyAgleese author. I have two Facebooks. So, you know, Glees author or um twitter is radia underscore gleese um or instagram is radia gleese author you know so you can find me communicate with me if you want i'm here i'm here for you
0: well i'm so glad you're here this was an awesome discussion i'm so glad we were able to make this work so thank you for coming on and uh thank you listeners for stopping by If you wish to learn more about what's going on in my life, or wish to purchase my book, go to thecultofchristianity.com. If you'd like to support this podcast, please continue to listen, follow, share, and consider subscribing for additional content. For only five bucks a month, you'll have access to two additional shows, Parsing Propaganda, where I review and critique Christian content, and Art, where we try some amateur religious trauma therapy. Every subscriber becomes a part of something bigger than this podcast, as we endeavor to hold churches accountable, speak the truth boldly, and most importantly, love others despite our pain. Thank you for listening, and remember to keep love in your life, hope in your heart, and searching in your soul.